0: You say something that's surprising, Any kind. <gasps> oh, what did they just say? <laughs> you get the oh. And if you say something that makes me sad, makes me sad. And then if you say I'm just kidding, then it might go. No, 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 <laughs> Thank you, thank you. I love it. I love it. Thank you, uh, Auntie Dana. That was awesome. Uh, it made me made me laugh. So, God is good. God is good in the gifts of the body. Uh, as things open back up again in increasing measure, we look forward to having everybody together again. Uh, I'm thankful for those who are here and in our overflow, um, but I tell you, my heart does, does miss. I, I look and I see uh, different segments of our, our seniors, our kupuna, who I know are at home and, and listening, some on the phone. Uh, I miss you all, and I, I just can't wait till we can come together, but we rejoice what the Lord has provided, and we will continue to do so. All of us, all of us have been impacted in this time in some way, whether you realize it or not. All of us have been impacted in one way or another, whether through the loss of job or finances, or maybe you actually know somebody who either contracted the virus, or died from the virus, or had a friend or family member who went through this, or we've struggled in various ways with the, with the many different facets of the stay-home order, of the, the isolation, the social distancing, the, the pain of feeling just disconnected from loved ones, separated, or simply the loss of freedom. All of us have been impacted in some way, and we have all suffered to some degree. And as our community begins to recover, there are issues that have been flushed out, aren't there? There's issues that have been squeezed out of our hearts through these circumstances. And thankfully, I believe Paul's letter to Timothy His second letter to Timothy that we call 2 Timothy will provide us great encouragement, instruction, and where needed, correction in all of these matters over the next few weeks. And so I'm excited to get into this letter of 2 Timothy. We went through 1 Timothy as a church in 2016. Wow, it seems like yesterday in some ways, and in other ways it's like, wow. It has been 2016. Okay, so it has been a while since we have been in Paul's letters to Timothy, but we are here. And so let me give you some background, some context for, for you listening in. Uh, Second Timothy is known as a prison epistle. Why is that? Why do call it a prison epistle? Because he wrote it while he was in prison, in chains. He references this several times in this letter. He wrote it while he was in prison for the gospel. It's four chapters long, they're short chapters, you can read the whole book from start to finish, it's a letter, we call it book, it's a letter, you can read the whole letter in about 15 minutes, it takes you about 15 minutes to read it in one sitting from start to finish, and that accounts for, you know, the slow readers, that's not speed reading, if you go fast, you're a fast reader, you'll probably knock it out in 10, but in about 15 minutes, you can get the whole thing done, which I'd encourage you, you should do sometime if you can. Whether this week, next week, the coming weeks, try and take a small 15-minute time, a chunk, and read it. That's the way the first audience would have read it. They would have read it in one sitting. And, and you open the, the mailbox, you pull out a letter, uh, very few of us open that letter and then just read one, one sentence and then put it down and come back uh, a, another week, right? We read it from start to finish. And so this is a letter that would have been read from start to to finish, And you will see things when you do that. You will see uh, repetition. You will see points of emphasis. You will see structure, all very important, inspired by the Holy Spirit of God that impacts meaning and message that you wouldn't see any other way. And so I'd encourage you, uh, sit down sometime and do that. You should make it a habit of doing that with pretty much any book of the Bible, and you will find, see more than you saw before. Uh, If you're going to read like Isaiah, you might need like four hours a whole day to read Isaiah. Um, But the the shorter ones you can knock out quite easily. In 2 Timothy, Paul is an aged saint. He's a young man. He's an aged saint. He's a young man when we first meet him in the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, Saul is is young. He's in his younger years and the younger years and the strength of his youth. He's zealous. He's a persecutor of the church. He's got lots of energy, lots of ideas, and he is just hard charging. But here in Second Timothy, no, Saul of Tarsus has long since met Jesus. It's been many years since that Damascus Road event. He's gone on several missionary journeys. He's been beaten multiple times, imprisoned shipwrecked, bit by poisonous snakes, seen many mighty, hand, mighty things, wonders done at the hand of God, and, and now he's sitting in the, the final leg of his life. He's a veteran missionary. He bears in his body literally the marks of his Savior, being lashed, and he is now at the very end of his life, and Paul knows it. For the first time, he knows it. He has been forsaken by most. He'll reference this later in the, in, the, in the letter. While he's in jail, many of his companions forsook him. He was left all alone. If you read the last chapter, I encourage you to do that later. He says, only Christ, only Christ stood with me. That's it. So you feel this pain of social distancing, this pain of isolation that has happened over this time. You feel lonely. You feel like the only person you have is Christ. This is why Paul is writing in this season of his life when he is, in a sense, social distancing in jail. And he says, only Christ stood with me. This is why we're going to have lots of encouragement. Because if only Christ stands with you, that's enough, isn't it? If only Christ is with you, that's enough. Now, we know that in here. But to wrestle that in here is a different matter, isn't it? And here's Paul who has walked it, talked it, and is now living it. And to say that Christ is enough isn't to say that we don't need others either. It's just a hard paradox for us because he calls in this moment of need to Timothy. He sends for his faithful friend, Timothy, at this time when he has been forsaken, his child in the faith, and he says, come, come to me, Timothy. And so this letter has a tone of finality to it. Paul knows, like I said, this is the last leg and his race is coming to an end. And just like a relay race, I'm sad the the Summer Olympics are canceled. I love those things. But but just like a a relay race, there's a, a small window of time, a small distance segment that the runner has to run and to pass off the baton the person in front of him. It's a very small window of time, and they have to do it in that window of time. Paul senses that he is in this window of time, and thus writes in such a way to prepare, to prepare young Timothy to take the baton and continue the mission and suffer well for the sake of the gospel. And so it's got a tone of finality to it. As Timothy received this letter, it is personally to Timothy, but it was meant for Timothy to read it and then take this letter to church and it would be read to the church as a whole also. So it's both a personal letter and a corporate letter for the instruction of the church. In this way, it acted as a form of public accountability, both for Timothy, as he has to execute the words of Paul, and for the church, as they have to hear and receive Timothy's execution of these commands. So it's both personal and pastoral to instruct the church. That's why he ends the letter, the last verse, in chapter 4, verse 22, he says this, the Lord be with your spirit, singular, because he's writing to who? Timothy, the Lord be with your spirit. And then he says the very next sentence, grace be with you, plural, second person plural. In other words, we could translate grace be with you all. Or if you're from the South or grew up in the South like me, we'd say grace be with y'all. It's, it's plural. So there's personal and corporate dimensions to this letter. So without further ado, let's pray and get into it. Father in heaven. Psalm 19, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. There are some within the sound of my voice. And all of us, in some ways, where we desperately need, our souls revived. Revive it according to your word. Your testimony, O Lord, is sure, making wise the simple. Father, make us wise. Make us live wise and godly in this age, in this season, in these days. But above all, make us wise unto salvation through the crucified resurrected Savior. The precepts, Father, your precepts are right, rejoicing our hearts. Would you give us great joy in your word this morning? And your commandment is pure, enlightening our eyes. Father, open our eyes to see wondrous things from your word open our eyes to see the areas in our life that are not in conformity to your word that we might be brought to conformity to your word and as psalm 19 will finish father warn those who need to be warned this morning and reward woo all of us by faith in christ to come to you and see that you are the God who gives joy, everlasting joy. And so may you reward us as we keep your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, I have three points. Number one, God's promise. Number one, God's promise. Number two, Paul's prayer. So God's promise, Paul's prayer, and a pastoral prodding. Number three, a pastoral prodding. God's promise is one through two. Now, remember, Paul is in prison, but he's not just in prison, not just doing his time and expecting to get out. No, Paul is... on death row. He is awaiting his execution. And so he is writing to Timothy and he begins the very letter, which this just blows my mind. This is what he says here. The words, verse one, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Interesting, because Paul knew his apostleship was by direct command of God and everything else associated with it, including his imprisonment. By the will of God, and check this out, according to the what? Read it. According to the promise of what? The life that is in Christ Jesus. That is astonishing. Paul opens his letter with a reference mentioning the promise of life. Picture Paul's on death row. He, he's looking to his death, and where is he leading his heart and his mind? Where? What is he leading himself to dwell on? The promise of life. Death is near. Death is at the door, but he's not looking at death. He's looking at what? The promise of life in Christ. He is actively dwelling on the word of God. Paul knows that our God makes promises and he keeps them. He keeps his promises. He says this to, to Titus. So this is a pastor. Another letter he wrote to Titus, another servant, fellow servant in the gospel. Uh, so he's got this letter to Timothy and then there's Titus. And he says this in the opening verses to Titus, Paul A servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness, here it is, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. He never lies. When God promises something, it's going to happen. Our world is full of broken promises, isn't it? Some of the most painful experiences in life are broken promises. Our life, our world is full of this pain. Broken promises, fake news, things you don't know whether to believe, whether it's true or false, or we're going to hear something else that's going to overchange that or overturn that news. It's hard to even know what to believe anymore, isn't it? When you read the media, when you know, when you're trying to figure out what's going on, it's hard to make sense of it. There's so much misinformation and broken words. There's there's plenty of broken promises from politicians. People who are supposed to be leading our country and not doing what they say they're going to do. There's broken promises from parents, from friends, from spouses, from family members, from lawyers. The world is just full of broken promises. But hear me, Beloved. God has promised, and he doesn't lie, he has promised life, everlasting life to everybody who places their whole heart, their whole faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. He's promised it. It's going to happen. You ever sit here wondering, am I going to make it in heaven? Am I really going to get there? In spite of all that I've done, in spite of my past, my heart—I wander like this from today. Sometimes it's like this, and other days it's like this, and then sometimes I go side to side when I'm not up and down. Am I gonna make it? God has promised life in Christ. So at the beginning, we're, we're not even halfway, we haven't even started the sermon. I just want to address three groups of people who may be listening either in here, either in the fellowship hall, maybe outside in the breezeway, or online through social media or YouTube. I want to address three groups of people. Maybe you are exploring Christianity. Praise God. Explore press in, prod, ask questions, uh, try and understand, how does this work? How does that work? We, we welcome that here anyways. You're not going to get turned away. Praise God. Come and ask questions. So I want to address you. I am thankful. I am thankful in part for the coronavirus that has halted everything and has maybe for the first time made you think about the mortality of your life, Fact that you are going to die, and death is just around the corner from every one of us. Nobody saw this coming in the end of 2019, the way it would happen here. Nobody. But it has helped all ages to see that we need to be ready to meet our Maker. The Creator can call at any moment. The coronavirus is not death. It is a shadow of death. It is an echo of death. Death is suffering cut off from Christ under the wrath of God for our sins forever and ever. That is death. Eternal separation. Of which other menial viruses, sicknesses, as awful as these things are, they are the shadow of what's to come. But thanks be to God, you need not fear death if you trust Christ. If you cling to Christ by faith, if you trust in him for the forgiveness of your sins, and you, you worship and honor Jesus, you need not fear death. For you, the invitation is that of life. It is the promise of life if you will trust in Christ. And I pray that you will. as you I pray you come to the point where you just say, you know, I have answers, I have answers, and they're, they're important, I have more questions, but at some point you just need to say, I am going to follow Jesus. He is my king, and I trust in him. I pray that day is today. Would you do that? Today? If you've done that, if you're doing that today, please contact me, see me after service, let me know because I would love to just begin the process, the relationship with you of helping you see what that means for your life. We would all love to do that. Amen? Amen? Second group of people I'd like to talk about is my KBC Ohana. Where is your hope of life, KBC? As the coronavirus continued to spread and continues to pose a of re-spreading, re spiking or any other number of things that could happen. But many of us would look and ask, we ask the first thing, what's, what's, the, what's the death rate? What, what is the likelihood that I'll get it? If I get it, what's the recovery rate? How effective is the treatment? Right? We're looking at all these things. We want to know the information, the, the statistics, the data. Don't get me wrong. It's not bad information to know or to ask. All I ask is where does your heart derive its ultimate comfort? Where does your heart derive its ultimate comfort? At the end, it will not be statistics. Data will not suffice to drive away fear at the end. Information alone does not take away guilt or a conscience that is impure. But the promise of life of Christ and Christ does. The promise of life in and through Christ, by faith in him, actively dwelling on God's truth, can absolutely snuff out any fear. Can drive away the accusations of a conscience that is trying to accuse you. So, beloved, when death comes near, I want to urge you now, let us have a pattern now of directing our hearts, intentionally pushing our minds to the promise of life in Christ. The third group I want to direct and address, this too, is the doubting believer. The doubting believer. Maybe due to your sin, your own sin, maybe your own natural disposition, you find yourself wondering whether god will truly accept you different people were all given to some kind of doubt at times but sometimes some are particularly prone to these doubts wondering will god actually am i actually saved am I actually in christ and you ask these things cuz you sense the greatness of your sin you sense the overwhelming twistedness of your own thinking at times. You you sense this. You see the the perfection and the holiness that God demands. He says, without holiness, nobody's going to see the Lord. And so you doubt whether you will actually make it into his kingdom. Well, let this word be balm to your soul. This is a promise from God. Not dependent on you, ultimately but dependent on him and his power to keep you. This is a promise to grant you life in Christ, if you will believe it. And all this promise to mind, just like Paul, and everything else that follows in this letter starts with this sure foundation of God's promise to us in Christ. So that's the first one, God's promise second point paul's prayer verses three through five paul launches into a prayer of thanksgiving he starts with his service to god that he worships god with a clear conscience as a result of his standing before god because of the work of christ his clear his good conscience now if anybody needed a clear conscience you know it was paul Right? You remember Paul, he, we, we are introduced to Paul at the stoning of Stephen, the faithful Stephen. After his sermon, Paul is holding the coats of those who are stoning him. He is an active participant, cheering on the death of this heretic Stephen, persecuting the people of God, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ full with fury and anger towards them. If there is anybody who needed a clear conscience before God and needed the promise of life in Christ, Paul was very much this person. Furthermore, Paul was actively being attacked in that very moment by his opponents precisely because of his imprisonment. Do you see? Just think, I go to jail... There's people that don't like me, right? Let's say say I go to jail. I know there's like, what? People who don't like you? And others are like, yeah, I don't like you, right? No, right? Uh, if I were to go to jail, face, <laughs> some of our opponents would say, ah, oh, what pastor is this? Look, he's doing wrong. Clearly, I mean, you're going to follow that guy? He's in jail. These are the types of things. What kind of doctrine is that? Well, How would God let let his servant, his faithful servant, go to jail? There must be something wrong with Pastor Randy. That's what they were doing with Paul. And a lot more. And a lot worse. And so Paul is actively being attacked and so he references his clear conscience before God. The lives of men matter little when we have a clear conscience before a holy God. He moves on and he prays. He thanks God for Timothy. He says, I, I remember you constantly in my prayers, Timothy. I remember you constantly before God, Timothy. And he starts to reminisce, right? When you're at the end of your life or you see somebody you haven't seen for a long time, what do you do? You start. You see them, reminisce about good old days, about good times, good memories. Oh, you remember when we did that? And This is what he starts to do with Timothy. He begins to reminisce with Timothy. As he prays for Timothy, he's also thinking about these memories that he has of Timothy. This often happens when you pray for people, you think about them. You think about different aspects of their life, different ways the Lord to use them to bless your life. This is what he's doing with Timothy. He says he remembers Timothy's tears in verse 4, and he longs to see him again. At some point, we don't know what he's referring to. It could be the departure in Acts 20. It could be a different departure, but he's referring to sometime probably when Timothy just wept over missing Paul, his father in the faith, just longing to see him. I can imagine some situations that would warrant or elicit that response from Timothy as a young pastor in churches, de- fighting sin and fighting false teaching and getting attacked, I could see many occasions where Timothy would probably just long, oh, if Paul was here, Paul would know what to do, and Paul would say, I don't know what to do, God knows what to do, but Timothy has tears, and he longs to see Paul, and Paul longs to see him, this is a friendship that is both deep and wide. It's deep on the things of God, and it's wide, and it encompasses a lifetime of memories, a lifetime of circumstances. Many in the church long for this type of relationship to have with another believer, don't we? We long to have this type of where we can almost say, you are my child in the faith. I'm like a father to you, or you're like my sister or my brother in the gospel. Many long for this type of relationship. As an aside, I want to encourage you that these types of friendships, these partnerships, they don't just passively happen. You don't just kind of stumble into them. Oh, look, we're best friends in Christ. No, these are forged. These relationships are forged as we collectively engage in the works of ministry together in every small group gathering In every meal night, in every time of prayer, every dinner over coffee, every missional or ministry opportunity we engage in, we have the opportunity to cultivate these kinds of relationships. And ultimately, do you know the way to do it? It's not just saying, I want a friend like that. That's not the way to do it. Ultimately, here's how you do it. You know how you get a friendship like this? You sell out for Jesus. That's how you get a friendship like this. You go for broke for Jesus. You swing for the fences for Jesus, and you don't stop. And then eventually, you will, be fi- you will find people who want to do the same. That's what you do. And you, you just sell out, and you love Christ, and you love people around you. And you be this type of person, and then you will find community. This friendships are cultivated, and it spreads. But Paul and Timothy's friendship—it is both deep and is wide. He remembers his tears. He remembers Timothy's faith. He says, "Is a faith he received from his grandmother, through his mother, down to him." Now, Timothy, little background, little. Uh, biography of Timothy. Timothy, his mother, was Jewish. His father was a Greek. His father, we have every reason to believe, was an unbeliever, was not saved. You say, how's that happen? That sounds kind of messed up. That's the world we live in, isn't it? Things happen. Maybe they got saved, and, or maybe they got married, and then she, she became faithful. Maybe, uh, maybe he didn't. Maybe, maybe she, whatever. We don't know. But she was Jewish, devoted to the Lord, and he was not. His dad was not. And so he can trace lineage from his mom to his grandmother. Oh, grandparents. Grandparents, grandparents. We have a lot of children in our church. We have several generations represented in our church, which means we have grandparents in our church. Praise God. If you are a grandparent, can you just raise your hand? Just raise your hand. Let me see the grandparents. Ooh, a number in here. Awesome. Yeah, praise God for grandparents. Yes, yes, yes. Um, grandparents, oh, the impact of living a holy and godly life for Jesus is huge, is not to be underestimated grandparents maybe you were a parent at some point in your earlier or you were a parent you had to be a parent to be a grandparent in your early years right um as a grandparent maybe in your earlier years with your first go around with your children maybe maybe you have a lot of things you regret maybe not but maybe you do maybe you have a lot of things you regretted that first go around and god has gifted you a grandchild and his kindness a grandchild a new arrow fashion that make it true Learn from the mistakes of the past and make Jesus the center of your very life and do your best to encourage that child to do the same and you will impact eternities. Moms, sisters, maybe you have a spouse who is either not a Christian or not as godly as you hope. Either he's not a Christian or he's not as godly as you hoped he would be. That's probably me. I'm not as godly as my wife hoped. No, right? But maybe you have a spouse who is, who is not a Christian and you see all these other spouses and, and they're like, man, they have, they're, the dad's there doing family worship or whatever it is and I just wish I had that. Sisters, listen up. God can and does use the intentional faith of mothers to raise up a generation of men follow Jesus to the end of the world. Amen. He does. Your efforts are not wasted. God, in, in your broken family dynamic, whatever that looks like, or less than God's ideal, he doesn't need the ideal to raise up servants. He said, I can make stones cry out if people do not. Just be faithful. Just Keep pressing in. Keep sowing that seed praying over your children, and they will rise up one day and call you blessed. And by the grace of God, worship him forever and ever. So he remembers. He remembers Timothy's tears. He remembers Timothy's faith. And now he's going to do some reminding. He prays for Timothy and all these things. And now Paul says, okay, I've remembered enough. Let me remind you now. Let me remind you now, Timothy. I've got a reminder for you. Number three, a pastoral Prodding, a pastoral prodding. Verse six and seven. Now we're actually getting to the heart of the message for Timothy. Here's what he says: Fan to flame, Timothy. Fan to flame the gift of God, which is in through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us not a spirit of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Fan it in the flame. That's his reminder. He says, so I've remembered. Now I'm going to remind you, Timothy, fan this gift to flame. Before we get there, it's important to note how Timothy received this gift. Every word of God is important. How did he receive this gift? Well, you say, God gave it to him. Yes, and God uses means. What was the means by which Timothy received his gift? He says, through the laying on my hands. Now, there's nothing mystical, per se, about that, other than the transfer of authority. The symbolic transferring of authority and recognition of office. What am I saying here? Timothy was not a self-appointed preacher or pastor. He didn't just say, well, God called me to works of ministry, so I'm going to do it. I don't need the approval of anybody else. He didn't say that. He didn't say that. He was not a self appointed preacher. And indeed, any self appointed pastors or teachers are worthy of great questioning. Think of Paul the Apostle. He received a direct vision from the Lord Jesus Christ. He even had Peter receive a direct vision and another prophet direct vision from the Lord Jesus Christ concerning his role. And yet, he still got grilled in Jerusalem. He had to go to Jerusalem, and all the other apostles and uh, other followers of Jesus Christ questioned him concerning his doctrine, prodded, pressed into him to ensure that he was, in fact, of the faith, faithfully following God. He did not self-appoint. Self-appointed pastors or teachers abound today. Say, so who are you to question what God has called me to do? There's no recognition from others, there's no recognition from any other ecclesiastical body. They, they come through and they say, God has called me an apostle this, an apostle that. No, this gift that Timothy had came through the ministry of Christ, and was affirmed and exercised in the context of the local church. It's worth noting that. God bestows these gifts, and they must be grown into and cultivated by those who receive them. So you have a gift. All of us have a gift. Your gift might not be Timothy's gift. It might be something different. You have a gift given by God, and you must cultivate that gift. You must fan it to flame and grow into it. About a year ago, we went camping on Lanai, a, a, a large chunk of us here from our church for our youth camp went camping on the island of Lanai, and, and Brother Eric is here today. Is, he was such a blessing, man. That was like uh, we were camping on the beach in Lanai. We had like five-star restaurant food. It was not camp food. It was the best camp food I ever had because he's the man. He was helping cook and laboring. We, we had this grill, and, and every day, multiple times a day, Brother Eric and Travis and others, and I think Noah Brennan and myself, they'd be over there with, the, with some plastic plates and foil paper, fanning the flame, getting those charcoals, and getting oxygen to them, and I just looked at them and they were like working super hard and sweating and fanning and fanning myself and fanning, right? and then uh, eventually those little embers would, would come up and turn into a flame, and then, then we were cooking, and we were on fire. Beloved, it takes effort to fan and cultivate your giftings. It takes God-wrought, spirit-driven effort to do that. It doesn't just happen. You got to, you got to get with it, vigorously fanning. It takes persistence. I think I did it like one time, <clears throat> and I was praise God for you guys, man, because it was like, oh, is this thing going to go? And then you're like, oh, you got to really work. It takes persistence and effort to fan these things to flame. And that's what Paul is telling Timothy. Fan it to flame, Timothy. Don't give up. Put the work in. Be a good soldier for Christ. Labor. Press on. Persevere. If it doesn't work the first time, do it again. If it doesn't work the second time, keep fanning and waiting, and it will come to flame Fan it into flame. Maybe some of you are here and you've served in the church for a long time. This can happen when you serve for many years or you're serving in a ministry and it gets discouraging and what started out as a flame can become an ember. Can Become an ember. God would say, through Paul, through Timothy, and in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, fan. Fan it. Keep fanning. Don't give up. God will not break the bruised reed or quench the smoking flax. Fan it to flame. Don't give up. Apparently, Timothy was needing this encouragement because Paul's next exhortation is to challenge his spirit of timidity, his spirit of fear or timidity. God has not given us a spirit of fear, he says. Now, I need to deal with the misuse of this passage first. So I'm going to take a little excursus here, go the misuse of this passage, talk about what it means, and then we'll be pow. Go home, pray, worship, continue. Ready? I got to deal with the misuse of this passage first. In this day, in this day, and I mean today, not just a day in general, but June 7th, 2020, In our times, we could say, more than a few are accusing other believers of living in ungodly fear. Living in fear due to their unwillingness to go out during the stay home orders or practice things like wearing a mask. And then passages like this are cited. Well, God hasn't given us a spirit of fear, we shouldn't be afraid. And accusing one another of, of fear, ungodly fear at that. The result is that this makes other believers feel guilty or like they're doing something sinful simply because they're choosing to stay home and wear masks rather than go out and gather. So I want to I address that. I want to address that. This is a misuse, and a misunderstanding of fear in general, sinful fear, and of this passage address that. It is not sinful fear to see danger and hide yourself. It is not sinful fear to see danger and hide yourself. I was foolish when I moved to Hawaii. Ignorant. And uh, here's how it played out. I had some, uh, I was a police officer, police academy. I had some big local brothers And one day we were outside doing a training exercise and something all of a sudden happened. There was some commotion and these big tough guys all of a sudden were screaming like little children. Ah, Jumping and stomping around. What on earth is happening? They said, centipede, centipede, centipede! (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, what? I've never seen a centipede, never never had any encounters with a centipede, and I was like, you guys are <laughs> crazy. Are so look how little this thing is. They're like, bro, no, this thing hurts, bro. You can... And they, they were telling me, one day in a parking lot in the middle of uh, what is now Barnes & Noble, was Sports Authority at the time over on Duke Road, in the middle of a parking lot, I'm walking, and I feel a sharp, burning, piercing sensation like I've never felt in my foot. And I look, and there's a a centipede, latched onto my foot, flipping all around, in the middle of the parking lot. And I'm like, ah, ah, and I start stomping, and Britt's right over there, we have children out, and she's like, what? I'm like, centipede, centipede. <laughs> if you see a centipede on the ground, or perhaps a bee, that'll turn me into a ninja, will take appropriate measures to avoid the danger, and nobody's going to call you sinful. They may laugh at you, depending on what you do, but certainly not accuse you of ungodly fear. And all of us have different responses, just like me at the beginning, I, I had no encounter with the centipede, I had no issues with the centipede, I, I was not afraid whatsoever, and now I'm yelling, centipede, centipede, centipede. We all have different responses, you see me with a bee? i B, I'm going to freak out. Go into all kind of other situations that are scary for people, but you get me around a bee. Mm-mm. But then I see somebody, like another one of my friends, who will come. We go to lavender farm. He comes just like this, Warren. I pray for you, miss you. Comes like this, and, and there's a bee, and he grabs it and catches it in his hand. And I'm thinking, what are you doing? Put that thing down. And he's different responses, different responses. He's crazy. I'm rational. No, right? Different responses. We all have different experiences, past, backgrounds that inform how we respond. And we should recognize that and not be quick to label one person's response or another when there's really good reason, arguable cause, sinful fear. God values life. Oop, that cut out. God values life. We collectively believe in the sanctity of human life. Therefore, it is again not sinful to take appropriate measures to protect life. Oh, is it cutting? It's cutting out. Okay. They're gonna work on that. Sorry, be patient. I'll repeat myself many times. It is not sinful to take appropriate measures to protect life. Now, we may disagree on what is appropriate, and that's fine. Intermission. Mahalo, thank you. Nick Tanaka, we're having some sort of interference. Now we may appropriate is. That's fine. But we should be very slow, very slow and cautious to label others as walking in sinful fear or somehow displeasing God simply because they approach it differently than we maybe think they should, or we would like them to. So that's the first thing. Not all fear is sinful. Fear, and as we look at a virus or something that really is actually taking lives, many of them, uh, that is something we should be very charitable with others. I want to give you three other real brief reasons, three other real brief reasons to in response to these matters that have nothing to do with fear. So I'm going to give you three brief reasons that, aside from fear, so you don't, this has nothing to do with fear, as to why. This could inform our response. So, reason number one obedience to authorities. Obedience to authorities. God commands us to obey our governing authorities, He commands it. And wearing this right now and social distancing is the law of the land. It is the law of the land. I have a lot of people who are like, is this the law? It it is. It really is the law of the land. This is actually, and so we are commanded to obey our governing authorities. Now catch this. It doesn't matter what I think is reasonable. Hear, Hear me on this, okay? It does not matter what you or I think is reasonable when it comes to God's command to honor and obey our authorities, to honor and obey our authorities. I could make a really compelling, super compelling, scientific case as to why, and all of you would agree with me, as to why the speed limit going from Kahului to Kihei on Mokulele Highway, or Maui Veterans Highway, should be more than 45 miles per hour it's a straight road. There's a huge median. There's no residences. There's mainland. There's jurisprudence for this and other districts. There's all kinds. I can make all kinds of reasons why we should be able to go 65, even 85 miles an hour from Kahalui to Kihei. And guess what? It doesn't matter. I have to go how fast? 45, if I'm going to honor God's word. I have to go 45. I have other strong feelings about that. There might be other things about that. It doesn't make sense, but it doesn't matter. If I feel strongly enough, I can begin to lobby. Maybe I could run to my office. Maybe I could try and do something to, to rectify this if I feel like it's really that big. But at the end of the day, this minute I have to go to Kihei. God commands me to obey my authorities whether I agree with them or not. Unless they are forbidding what God commands or commanding what God forbids, we have to obey them. More than that, we have to honor them. That's hard. You can obey without honoring, can't you? You can obey without honoring. We have to honor and obey our authorities. So, At the same time, as we are honoring our authorities, we are simultaneously trusting in this. The heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. So that's another consideration. First consideration or second, depending on how you labeled it in your books. Second consideration uh, as to why these things are helpful and we have to them, and it is not sinful fear, other factors that inform our response. Third one, love of neighbor. I'll go through briefly. The second great command in preferring others more than ourselves, we love our neighbor. I might not be afraid, but Elijah might be deathly afraid. I want to love him and not prefer my own, and you know, Elijah, this is, that is clearly causing you some, your concern, and and I'm not going to argue with you with that. I'm just going to love you where you are. Love of neighbor. The fourth would be our community witness, our community witness to the world. Understandably, the world will not like everything we do, but if we suffer, let it be for the gospel and faithfulness to it, not necessarily for seeking our comforts or desires. We have biblical examples of this, by the way. Acts chapter 16 is a lot more than social distancing and wearing a mask. Uh, Acts chapter 16 We see Paul has Timothy circumcised. Remember, Timothy's dad was a Greek. His mother was a Jew. He was not circumcised in accordance with the law of Moses. Paul made Timothy, had Timothy get circumcised before he would take him to Jerusalem with him. Why? Is circumcision required by the law to be right before God? Absolutely not. Paul just argues against this in most of his letters. But he had Timothy do what was not necessary that he might preach the gospel without any unnecessary stumbling blocks. Sums it up like this in 1 Corinthians 9, 19-23, we get this heart attitude here. Here, Paul the apostle, for though I am free from all, so he's free, I have freedom in Christ, Though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became the weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might become, and I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I might share with them in its blessings. And if we were to add maybe first call Louis Baptist or something, we could say to the mask wearer, I became a mask wearer, that I might win the mask wearers. To the socially distant, I became zoom user that i might win the more beloved as christ left the present pleasantries of heaven himself taking the form of a servant we have a golden opportunity to do the same for one another now and in the future as well and so before we accuse others of sinful fear let us at least consider these other alternatives at play and be gracious in our assessment of others. So, what it doesn't mean, or how it shouldn't be used. What does it mean? Context is always king. Context helps us here. The Greek word here is not the spirit. Is, uh, he has not given us a spirit of fear. That word, fear, here is not the one we tend to associate with fear. Phobeo or phobos, where we get our English word phobia. You have arachnophobia or centipedophobia. That's not where we get the word. It's not that word. It's a different word, actually. It refers to timidity or what we could say is a lack of courage in the face of opposition. It could be seen and construed as cowardice. It could be seen and construed as cowardice. Needed to be reminded not To be timid. See, a pastor must not only instruct, that's one of my roles, is to instruct in sound doctrine. He must also be able to rebuke those who contradict it. Titus 1, verse 9. He must also be able to rebuke those who contradict it. In other words, a shepherd can't run from wolves, can he? The sheep can, they must but a shepherd can't imagine that a picture of a shepherd a predator comes a lion a bear all the sheep are running and he's like, I shepherd can't run from sheep uh, from wolves they must stand their ground they must fight for the flock be willing to die if necessary and this is precisely where many pastors struggle Timothy apparently was timid as well, and I'm not outside that struggle. Check this out. It is never pleasant to deal with false teachers or sin issues in the life of the body. It hurts. Wolves bite. They bite hard, and it hurts. It can kill you. Sheep bite too. It won't kill you, but they do bite. Wolves bite hard. Pastors need encouragement to stand their ground. Timothy needed encouragement. It is not pleasant. It is spiritual warfare. And so Paul tells Timothy, he prods him, he reminds him, God has not given us a spirit of fear, Timothy, but of power, love, self-control, the very things of false teachers, And opponents lacked. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul mentions these exact points again. He says men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, lovers of pleasure, and will have the appearance of godliness but deny its power. But Paul, on the other hand, tells Timothy, we have the gospel that is the very power of God unto salvation, Timothy. Stand your ground. So, beloved, where are you timid this morning? Where are you timid? Perhaps a family member. Perhaps somebody that you want to share the gospel with, but you feel that spirit of fear, timidity in the face of opposition. Maybe another believer that you know maybe I should speak a word of exhortation or loving, patient correction to. Where are you timid? The Lord has not given you a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and self-control. Where and how will you fan to flame God's gift given to you by the Holy Spirit? Maybe maybe you got slobbed during the stay-home order. It's easy to do when your normal routines get all thrown off. Maybe you got slothful in your spiritual disciplines, perhaps. Where are you going to fan to flame God's gift to you? Today, beloved, be resolved. Put your hand to the plow for the sake of Christ, and we find after all of this is said and done, after the dust settles and the suffering and upheaval begin to wrap up, we may find that God has given us a gift. He's given us a gift in truly revealing what matters most, what's finally important. And so let us together move forward fanning one another's gifts with the spirit of power, love, and self-control. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word, the words of life. By your spirit, help us to fan into flame the gifts you have given each one of us and corporately as a body. Father, help us to stand firm, to not be led by fear or timidity, but of power, love and self-control, as he sings in Jesus name.